You're listening to KSUA Radio 91.5 FM Fairbanks. My name is Kevin. And my name is Dylan. And we are back on another wonderful uh, Friday, early morning, almost afternoon, uh, here on the 2nd of July, 2021, for another episode of uh, Speaking of Anthropology. So uh, how are you doing, Kevin? How are things in Fairbanks? You know, how, how's a, how is it up there in the early July now? Yeah, no, I think things are things are great. Um, wishing, you know, as Dylan just said, wishing everybody a, a happy Friday um, and coming up a long weekend, I guess, for a lot of folks. Um, be safe out there. Uh, it's really hot. So stay hydrated. Uh, what it's like it's going to peak at 87 or something today. It's really going to be warm. It's nice and smoky out there. So uh, just just in, enjoy the day as much as you can. But uh, no, things are going well here in Fairbanks. Um, and uh I mean, it's summer. I mean, what else can you ask for? It's a, not winter, but I don't know. I also enjoy winter, so I think there's a, a bit of a mix of that. But it's really great and nice to be back on on live again with you, Dylan, because it's uh, it's been quite a few hectic weeks in, in the summer. But uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. So, uh, how's it down for you in the PNW? Uh, better. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, heard about the catastrophic record-breaking apocalyptic uh heat wave that we had here in the pacific northwest extending basically from uh like northern california all the way into british columbia and so you know that was pretty that was pretty rough it peaked where i'm at um i think it peaked at about 111 113 uh and that was on monday but then after that, it has uh, cooled down here, although, you know, a lot of folks um, in other parts, mostly uh, further in the interior, are still suffering from some of the heat. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's been <laughs> it's been intense, I'll say. But now it's, we're, uh, you know, we're slowed down a little bit. It's a uh, it's a cloudy day now. It's only 70 degrees out, you know, so it's a little a little more restrained. But yeah, no, the definitely feeling the um extremes that uh are coming to define what summer is like now unfortunately but you know that's as it goes i guess yeah and th- so uh i guess today here on speaking anthropology uh you know you know summertime is all about getting out and uh enjoying the beautiful weather enjoying the sunshine but dylan and i are bringing it back indoors and uh we're doing an- another movie review uh a documentary review um yeah. So, what's what, what were we looking at today, Dylan? <laughs> yeah. What? What? So, for our listeners, yeah, as you said, you know, summertime's all about getting outside, so we decided to go indoors and watch a movie. <laughs> but you know, this is actually, um, I think, an interesting movie, considering, as you mentioned, there's the long holiday weekend, and you know, with um, July Fourth coming up, and this is a movie about uh, essentially immigrants to america right so what we watched today was the split horn which is uh, a documentary that premiered i believe in 2001 and it is on the life of a Hmong shaman in america so it it, in a nutshell it is following um this uh Hmong shaman uh panjatao and his family as they uh you know 
I'm not going to say necessarily fully adjust, but more so deal with the realities of living in America. Because by the time the documentary is made, he and his family have been there, you know, for, I think, 17 years now, right? But as they're raising kids and, you know, trying to to maintain traditional Hmong culture, uh, while at the same time as their children are going off and becoming very Americanized, that is more so sort of the uh, the... I don't mm, conflict maybe, but you know, sort of the the uh, struggle presented in in the documentary. Uh, but originally, actually, this is not the first time Kevin or I have seen this, uh, right? So we landed on this one because we actually originally watched this as part of our online medical anthropology course. I think it was. Um, Dr. Drew, forgive me for forgetting the name, but I think it was simply something like Intro to Medical Anthropology or something, but it was a 300-level online medical anthropology course, and this was one of the documentaries um, we watched during it. And so, obviously, for that, we were focusing on this on a slightly different perspective. But I'm curious, Kevin, as to maybe go back real quick, and I'll ask you what you remember from that initial viewing of when we watched it for that class, I think, two or three years ago now, and sort of what you took from it then. Uh, and then maybe we'll get into our rewatching of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, thinking back on this film split horn, it was definitely one of those documentaries that I, when I watched, I was like, yeah, this is one I'm going to remember, <laughs> um, you know, thinking about kind of the anthropological, uh, identity of the film, right. Uh, bringing it together to very unique, you know, worlds, clashing into one, um, be it spiritually or physically, right? Um, you know, it's this, this film, uh, Split Horn, is based in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, where this Hmong family is is based. Um, and, uh, you know, you can watch, like, what, for the first five minutes of the film and already feel a sense of curiosity. Yeah, some of the, 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 the acts that they're doing for shamanistic practices um, paired alongside... The fact that they're sitting down and having a meal and there's just a, a Mountain Dew or a Pepsi sitting on the table. The kids are interacting with very American and yet also Hmong, you know, items of, of you know, be it dresses or, you know, ornaments um, and from also American culture. Uh, you know, I, what's interesting, Dylan, I think um, to me and what I thought was really well done for this documentary and why it stuck with me is, um, I mean, I just read back on it, but it was a 17-year journey for filming this this life of of, of Pajatao um, and his family, of course, um, and uh, you know the the struggles that they had. Um, I loved also the the uh, the narration by the the younger daughter, right, um, and and kind of walking us through this life and story of what's going on um, with you know how uh, shamanistic practices can still exist for. A, a Hmong community in Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, I think what's super memorable, at least, is just, you know, whoa, shamans are, you know, uh, I think maybe because I was still very young uh, taking this this class and intro to medical anthropology, I was like, shamanism, I've heard of it, never seen it, never experienced it, never expected to be here um, in, in here in America and, and you know, this, have a tradition and culture around it that's uh um you know is still very present in our society today so i was 
that was shocking to me. I think um, coming up, growing up, uh, not seeing it as present. Um, and then furthermore, I mean, just seeing things that we see every day and experience every day clash with that. Um, you know, her dot, the daughter, you know, loving um, American sports like basketball, I believe. Um, and, you know, kind of for me, it was the same. You know, I, I also myself, uh, American born Chinese, love sports like basketball, uh, but also wanted to, to maintain my Chinese cultural identity, my Taiwanese cultural identity. So it's kind of finding that balance, I think. Um, and then that, that really hit home for me, um, that experience uh, of being Asian American, uh, being, uh, you know, of different identities here in a new country, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, that's, I don't know, that was kind of a long-winded monologue, Dylan, but uh, it, it definitely, I think I hit on a few points about kind of, you know, what it means for the, the family, I, you know, their identity and what they're doing here as immigrants uh, in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And if, yeah, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with, um, you know, various uh, practices that are often all collectively called traumatism, and that is how um, in the film it is referred to even by um, Panjatala shaman, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, that's, those practices have been carried over to the United States might uh, be initially unknown to a lot of folks, you know, but uh, when you consider it as, as, as part of, you know, just the sorts of religious and cultural practices that everybody brings, right, and, you know, you sort of realize, oh, yeah, well, no, actually, it does make sense when you just kind of sit there and think about it a little more, but it definitely is, uh, I don't think a lot of folks, if they know what a shaman is, I think a lot of them would either think of shamanism as either something that's kind of far away, right? Like something that folks still practice in Siberia or something they associate with a lot of the new age shamans, you know, like in, in California and stuff where you have these, um, uh, you know, Americans who go out and who, who learn about shamanism and decide they too want to become a shaman. And then they sort of kind of do something that's more of a new age religion, right? Uh, but, you know, this is just the uh, folks trying to bring their traditional religious practices with them as they immigrate to the United States. I'll also say, too, um, for a little more context for folks who are unfamiliar with the Hmong. Uh, so Panja Tao and his family specifically are Hmong from um, Laos. They came from the Laotian highlands. Uh, this was a community that was displaced due to the Vietnam War and the um, Laotian Civil War and sort of the after effects of those conflicts in Indochina. And so Panja Tao and his family were resettled from a camp in Thailand, a refugee camp in Thailand uh, to the United States. And as you said, this is a, this filmmaking journey was a 17 year journey. And so they show, you know, at the beginning of the film, they show footage from those early days in America for um, the Tao family, right? So, you know, they show um, Panja Tao in English classes and stuff, right? And they show, you know, the family as they are, they first wound up in uh, Chicago, according to the documentary. And so, you know, footage from that. And then, you know, obviously, as you mentioned before, they end up in Appleton, Wisconsin. So it very much is, is tracing um, both the larger journey of this Hmong family and of the Tao family and stuff, as well as, of course, uh, focusing as it does on also a specific set of circumstances, especially 
in the second half of the film. The film itself is about an hour, so you know, about half an hour into the film, it um, becomes very focused on uh, Panjatau needing, actually, the shaman himself needing uh, healing, right? You know, who heals the healers, and so um, the family sort of coming together and and these discussions of how a lot of the Tao children had kind of moved away from traditional Hmong culture, right? Um, some of them had converted to Christianity, for example, you know, and so these sorts of, of movements away from the traditional cultural and religious beliefs of the Hmong people. Uh, but when Panja Tao, you know, needs uh, shamanic healing for himself, uh, the family sort of comes back together again for for this ritual, which is um, kind of the emotional climax, I guess, of the film right near the end. And so, yeah, you know, it, it as as you were saying, right, it's touching on on all these um, issues of maintaining cultural identity and not just uh, first generation immigrants, right, but also um, second generation right because some of the Tao children were born you know in the United States and stuff and so this sort of um, struggling to keep cultural identities alive as they progress um, you know through the generations uh, in in rural-ish you know maybe some better word for it small town America right in Appleton Wisconsin uh, but yeah and so Obviously, I would just to circle back real quick. Uh, we had watched initially for the for the specifically for the healing aspects, right? That the um, shamanism demonstrates. So I'm curious if any of those also um, you noted any of those either, right? Some of the various uh, practices or beliefs, such as early on, you know, they're discussing an uncle who had a stroke, and the um, Panjatau goes to check if his nose is broken because he says that if the nose is broken, then there's nothing that can be done. And so these sorts of both healing practices, but also, um, you know, just conceptions of, of medicine and wellness with the body itself. So I was curious um, if any of those stuck out to you at all, or if you had any thoughts on some of what you saw there, Kevin. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you, what you mentioned, the healing practice, that was, that was very interesting. Um, if I can recall from the film, um, but I, I, I found, I think, I think there's a big narrative plot in this film, you know, around Pajatao's um, personal issues. Um, I think, I believe he does like um, a kind of a shaman ritual for his own family, right? And um, it kind of lands on, um, you know, uh, essentially like a, a bad, I don't know, a bad ritual reading per se, if you want to say that, or a bad, you know, outcome, um, which kind of propels him to, f- into a bit of a depression, a depressive state. Uh, I don't know, depressive, right? Um, you know, he, he was definitely facing some some personal issues at that time. Uh, that was very unique because you think a lot about um, the ways in which, uh, you know, a shaman himself works so much, uh, him or her, uh, you know, generally works towards, um, you know, providing these healing or these rituals for other people. And yet the one he does for himself uh, is detrimental to his own personal life, which is very interesting um, that, you know, um, you know, very, very real, very, very existential moment for him um, and his family. Um, and then, of course, I think the longevity of the family supporting along the way and trying to, you know, keep 
uh, and finding balances uh, between American culture and, and the Hmong culture, the tradition versus the new. Um, yeah, you know, I, I found those uh, healing practices. And I mean, uh, also just to maybe visualize what he was doing and maybe we can try to as best as we can uh, describe it, Dylan. Um, you know, he, uh, Paja Tao essentially as a shaman is, uh, you know, imagine this, uh, he's shaking and chanting and dancing in a, in a, in a trance per se, right. Um, on a wooden bench. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think there's, there's one scene that I remember, I think they were playing like Simpsons in the background or something or some sort of TV show. And so, Pajatau is doing this shamanistic trance or this out-of-body experience and the kids are just chilling on the couch watching Simpsons and in the whatever I think MTV was hot at that time um, and just enjoying the afternoon uh, which is surreal to me I think um, it almost seems like it's such a uh, important ritual that needs to be done in a special place but Pajatau can do it uh, wherever he needs to go and of course he was supporting the monk community right um I believe, I think the daughter's name was Chai, I believe. Chai had, I think, mentioned at some point how, I, I think I remember her talking about, like, there aren't many shamans in the Hmong community in, in Appleton, Wisconsin, right? Makes sense. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, her father may be one of the last ones, if not, uh, you know, there may be more that may come uh, to the States. Um, but there weren't many left, and his dad, her dad was such an important part of the community. Um, and, you know, as a healer, as somebody who can help a family get out of a tough time, um, I thought that was that was such a unique idea. Um, when we talk about medicine, right, in the, the, the modern contemporary context, we think a lot about, um, you know, you go to a clinic, you go to a hospital, you get treated, um, you get prescriptions, you get, you know, some sort of medicinal support. Um, this, this is a unique experience um, of, of going to, or maybe... Pajatel will come to you and you will have, um, you know, this healing ceremony, this, this, this celebration or this, um, you know, ritual practice. Um, yeah. And it, 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 I find it really, really interesting. Um, of course. Uh, and then I, I am curious, you know, what are the, the, the limitations? And as we did see in the film, you know, a lot of the limitations that come from being a shaman and, and, and the struggles that he faces, um, I don't know how you felt about it, Dylan, but to me, the, there's a great deal of emphasis of struggle um, between the cultural clash um, of, of being American, but also being Hmong, you know, at the same time. Uh, that that was so, so unique, I think. Yeah, and as you pointed out, right, that juxtaposition that they have where they're showing these um, shamanic rituals, right? So as you said, you know, uh, Panja Tao is in a trance. He's got... Um, like a black cloth over his eyes you know so that he can focus on his trance and he's up on a bench with these um i don't know quite what the right word for it be but they're almost rattles right like uh strips of fabric with these um metals uh little metal discs like um you know sort of rattles we'll go with rattles i guess but you know and so he's uh shaking those and so there's there's noise to it he's you know moving around as you said on the bench right and also he's um being supported by other family members right because as is mentioned in the documentary you know if a shaman were to um fall or get injured while in the trance then it's believed that he would uh die right and so 
um, you know, from that, I would infer that there's a, a sense that while the shaman is, you know, engaged in the spiritual world, you know, the physical body is, is um, quite vulnerable. And so, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> it's not, I guess, what you would maybe call like an unobtrusive thing, right? Like it's, it's a noticeable presence in a room, right? Um, you know, when, when Panja Tao is in trance and is doing that, you know, and he's being assisted by at least one other family member, in some of the scenes, there was like two or three um, folks standing around. But as you were saying with that sort of uh, struggle, right, um, you know, the all the relatives who are helping him are of his generation, right? They're all the, the older relatives, the older Hmong relatives, right? Whereas, as you said, his kids are, you know, sitting on the couch watching MTV or whatever, you know, or just trying to enjoy the afternoon. And that's something that comes up a fair amount, especially towards the middle of the documentary, right, is, um, you know, repeating the fact that, uh, you know, he laments that his children won't help him with the rituals anymore, right? And um, one of his sons who still lives at home, uh, Jue, I believe is his name, talks about how you know, he's like, well, I just don't have time. I have um, school, I have work, I have, you know, I want to have a social life, right? I don't have time for, um, you know, for aiding with the rituals and stuff, because they're not individual, um, discrete things, right? It's not like it's, you know, one ritual every six months or something, according to a liturgical calendar, right? These are events that happen as are necessary and so assisting with it seems to be um somewhat of an open-ended commitment right uh you know so <laughs> it's not like you know it's not like uh christmas or something right where everybody gathers together and you help make one big meal and you're like all right all done i'll see you all next year you know like that was a help right it's like no you know this is sure one thing is happening today and something else might not happen for two weeks so in that respect they're discreet but it's, it's on an as needed basis, right? You know, and so uh, it's somewhat of a more open ended commitment, it seems to me, um, you know, and so it, that is something that his children, as they're, you know, trying to navigate adolescence, don't seem particularly interested in assisting with. And then you also have the fact that a lot of the adult children have moved quite far away, right? Um, of the ones who have moved far away, one is mentioned as living in Madison, right? Madison, Wisconsin. So presumably um, not super far away, although Wisconsin, I guess, is not the smallest state. But then another is in North Carolina, right? So you you have, you know, a, in a, a family that is not just, a, you know, the younger generation finding itself wrapped up in, in um, American culture and, you know, trying to fit in and, and lead these sorts of lives that are expected of them by broader American society. But you also have, as they then move from their teenage years and adulthood, they're moving out of state entirely, you know, or at least moving out of Appleton. And so there's a, a lot of forces, um, you know, that are moving in directions contrary maybe to what is presented as how Panja Tao would like his family uh, to be able to engage with the rituals and stuff. But yeah, I, I, the juxtaposition, you know, it, it is a, um, it is a very stark one, right, of the ritual versus 
the family watching TV. Um, but then there are also, as you mentioned, there are rituals for familial healing where the household members are involved because they're the subjects to it, right? And so then they're sitting there as Panjatao is, is, you know, um, I believe for that one, he was using a gong at one point, you know, working a circuit around them and using a gong and stuff. And so, yeah, you know, there's, there are times when <laughs> the family gets involved as subjects, the younger members, but uh, somewhat less so um, for most of the documentary as, as active um, participants in assisting with the rituals. And yeah, it, as you mentioned, right, the, um, the narrator of the film, um, Panja Tao's daughter, Chai Tao, um, you know, she mentions that the, she only knows one shaman that's her age, right? There's one shaman who's 12, right? And the rest are basically of her father's generation. And so there's this real concern that it's going to um, disappear. So yeah, you know, it's, there's, there's definitely a lot of, of interesting dynamics going on there for sure. Indeed, yeah. I, 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 um, I think for me, there's one consideration. Um, I mean, maybe returning back to kind of uh, what shamanism is. Um, I think we've we've talked a lot about it and the, how um, Splithorn, this documentary, kind of interacts with shamanism and how we follow this family and their their, you know, trajectory in life. Um, you know, with with the father being a monk shaman. Shamanism, I think, uh, for specifically for Hmong, uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Dylan, but it seemed, um, or at least you know, the way they portrayed is they talk a lot about balance and restoring, you know, this this serenity or this peace inside you. Um, be it uh, when I say inside you, I, you know, cosmologically, right? Um, finding yourself kind of centered. Um, you know, if you are sick, uh, you're not necessarily. It's not a a Western, you know, a Western medicine perspective of you're biologically, you know, uh, you know, ill, right? You're ill in the sense that um, something is off within you. Maybe your spirit has wandered away from you. Um, you've lost it, uh, and you need to reclaim it, essentially, refine it. Um, and that 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 um, you know reclamation uh, comes about through the shaman, uh, which is Pajatao, an example, um, going into the spirit world. Uh, with, of course, the physical self being, you know, going through the ritual and finding your spirit and returning it to you or bringing the spirit back to you um, and kind of this guide, this guide essentially um, of the spirit world, uh, which is very, very powerful. If you think about, I think, um, and the capabilities of healing, um, you know, uh, it it can kind of vary, I think, with with illnesses. Right. And so the, you know, the the skill and technique in which Pajatao practices um, is in that sense, uh, from what I can kind of tell is, uh, shamans are kind of like, uh, it's very, it, it's, it follows a lineage of the family, um, of who can be a shaman, right. Um, male or female. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the practice of, sh- of being a shaman, I think is there's a bit of translation education between one another. Um, and then of course it's just, you know, um, a, I don't want to call it, I, I'll call it a calling. I think that's not the right way. Um, maybe, maybe there's a different definition for it, but kind of a calling, uh, to, to be a shaman in that sense. Um, you know, the urban shamans. And I think there's a lot going on. Um, I, I think I, I remember in the class, the medical anthropology course, we, we, um, at the end of the semester, they were like, 
Um, we, we researched some, some different shaman groups that you can, or, or shaman courses or shaman, you know, uh, organizations that you can be a part of and, and be, you know, if you're interested in this sort of topic, but, um, or this sort of medicinal healing, um, it's, it's available out there. And, uh, I found that very interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I maybe just reflecting, um, briefly, uh, back on, you know, that course and example, um, you know, a lot of, I, I'm curious what to hear what you think your thoughts on this Dylan, but a lot of folks always ask me, Hey, Kevin, yeah. So you're, you're interested in medical anthropology. Um, what is medical anthropology? Right. And my answer to, to them, and I, maybe, maybe you hear, you'll hear mine and you can critique mine. I tell them, I say, and I think it's a pretty good one, Dylan. I don't know. Um, but it ranges from, you know, shaman practices, ritual healing, all the way to, um, you know, Western medicine, uh, to, you know, um, going to see a doctor, um, and what that entails and, you know, how hospitals work. Um, so there's a range there. Uh, of course I've covered, I didn't cover everything of course, but I'm, I'm saying the spectrum of medicinal practices are in there. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what, what am I missing in that spectrum in between, you know? Well, you know, it's difficult to, to, um, list every conceivable um, medical practice, right? Because for, you know, a lot of societies across time, it's very culturally specific. So even within broader frameworks, right, the these perspectives on it um, are a little different, right? So, you know, even within um, Western biomedicine, right, there is (laughs) differing perspectives on um, how to do it, what to incorporate from other medicinal fields, you know, uh, that sort of thing, right? So it's, you know, it's no, no, <laughs> no medical system even necessarily is monolithic. But yeah, you know, the, the application of that sort of anthropological lens, that anthropological framework, right, to medicine is, is definitely uh, fascinating, right? And especially too, because you know, you can see as well the intersections, right? So, you know, as a Hmong shaman, um, Panja Tao is both a healer, right? But also a spiritual leader, right? And so it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not just one thing for him, right? It You can't separate it out like that. That's not how the healing works. And that's not really how their religious beliefs work, right? And so, I've I've found in in um, there's many interesting things in medical anthropology, but I find the um, exploring sort of the intersections of various ideas that you see both in medical anthropology and in other aspects of anthropology, um, very very interesting and I think informative uh, to the plethora of of worldviews and cultural practices that are out there. But yeah, also I will say just real quick something that you had kind of skirted around right is, um, you know, we've been referring to Pancha Tao as a Hmong shaman. That's how he referred to himself and stuff, right? That's how the documentary refers to himself. But like, basically, as with many things that you come to find in the anthropology of religion, um, trying to create like a, a universalist definition of shaman is <laughs> a little tricky, right? Because as we've said already, um, shaman can refer as well to a diversity of practices. 
So the word initially um, came from and referred to, um, you know, the religious, um, spiritual, to an extent, medical practices of shamans in Siberia, right? Um, and then the Russian, what's now the Russian Far East. Um, but the word has now come to be applied more broadly, as we've said, both to um, Western organizations that have created sort of their own um, conceptions of shamanism. It's been applied to, uh, you know, traditional spiritual and healing practices in Southeast Asia, like with the Hmong. Um, it's even been applied, you know, to uh, spiritual practices in Western Africa, for example. And so it's, you know, shaman is a word that is um, definitely has connotations and can be um, useful for folks, both as a self-identifier, as an external identifier. But I will just say a word of caution for not trying to um, conceptualize shamanism as some kind of monolith that is, you know, uh, universal, right? The way that um, what it means to be a West African shaman or, you know, for example, or a Hmong shaman or a, um, you know, a shaman in Siberia, you know, those are those are not necessarily going to all have the same attributes and traits, even though, you know, externally and to some extent internally, we refer to them with the same word. So that's just my little asterisk for uh, this episode. But yeah, you know, um, do you have uh, any other thoughts on uh, the split horn that you'd like to share, Kevin? Yeah, I guess this, these are the, the final thoughts um, of what split horn is. Um, you know, maybe thinking a little bit back on, you know, <laughs> the four years of, of, of undergrad in anthropology, um, you know, the range of courses that I was able to take um, and the, the summation of all that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot about um, back to the split horn and, you know, the other films that we've talked about so far um, on, on our show here at Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5. Um, the, the variety of, of, practices um that come about uh you know be it be it through like shamanism or be it through um you know ayurvedic medicine or you know the other you know the, the variety of forms that we've talked about uh i i always think it's it's so interesting to think about uh healing um you know if you are you know you know severely ill in, in a certain manner you know, what, to what extent and what forms of, of medicine will you go out there and find and what can you find and what is available to you? Um, and, you know, thinking about, you know, maybe here in America, our medical system and other medical systems around the world and there are var varieties and there are acceptances of various forms of medicine. Um, that in itself is interesting, right? Um, you know, the clash, uh, again, you know, I, I, to me, I love the fact that split horn brings um, essentially a split down the middle of two cultures, uh, you know, finding themselves trying to mend and, and meld and, you know, of course, you know, you know, not destroy one another, but uh, find itself trying to work together in that sense. And, and that, that's very much the way I think a lot of science and culture is, is facing currently, right. Uh, with medicine, uh, with the, what we're seeing here in split horn and what, uh, you know, medicine is becoming, but, 
maybe that's just my two cents and a very, very, very broad understanding of and an explanation of what medicine's future is and so on and so forth. But it's really unique, I think, um, and, and, and worthwhile to see. I, I guess maybe the last comment that I will say is the the documentation, the filming of, of this piece, I, I believe uh, the filmmakers, um, uh, Taggart Siegel, um, you know, chronicling this whole, you know, 17 years of, uh, you know, the family, the Hmong family and uh, everything that's going on is not easy. It is really not easy. And of course, um, you know, we appreciate, uh, you know, uh, the Pajatao, Pajatao and his family uh, being able to to share that part of their lives with us um, from a ethnographic sense. Um, it's unique. Um, and it's not something that, you know, you, you, you can read in a book, but to actually see and understand and hear and feel and, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really something, something else, something special. Um, and I'm really glad that we were able to bring it here to everyone. So if you're interested, Split horn, right, Dylan? Uh, on Canopy, uh, if you know, for those UAF students um, or academic students uh, from anywhere in the world, it's available out there. Split horn, right? What are your final thoughts? Yeah, no, I just like you said, I'm deeply appreciative of the time and effort that uh, both uh, the Tao family and uh, the filmmakers put into this, um, you know multi-year almost two decade long project right and you know uh a lot of work a lot of of opening for the Tao family a lot of opening themselves up um you know to to uh showing stuff that a lot of folks would consider fairly personal you know in in america right um some of those struggles um and so you know just uh yeah it's a it's a definitely an interesting film as i said that's only an hour as well you know so it's yeah it's it's i think uh you know it's a fascinating documentary that touches on a lot of things both as we've said with medical anthropology with traditional healing and spiritual practices and uh you know with the struggle of uh families to uh you know both adapt to different cultures and differing circumstances while also preserving their own. So yeah, like you said, it's uh, available through the uh, uh, Rasmussen Library um, via Canopy for our UAF students and faculty. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's speaking of anthropology on the split horn on uh, KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week, the 9th of July with another episode of our show.